0: this morning we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 1 through 13. And we will get as far as we can in verses 1 through 13. We will most likely be picking it up again next week. Our key words for our worshipers in training are pray, ask, and gift. Teach us to pray. I don't know of anything more difficult, more confusing, and oftentimes rare in the typical Christian's life than prayer. That might be a shocking statement for some, but I want you to consider your own prayer life. It is the single area, hands down, that I hear about more often than anything else from Christians that they feel is lacking most in their life and the area that raises the most questions with regard to its purpose and its necessity. It really is rare, but for some people, and perhaps some of you, you do have a very vibrant prayer life and enjoy satisfying communion with God. And I hope that's true. I hope it can be true of all of us. One such man was a minister who spent most of his life in Bristol, England, named George Mueller. Mueller was alive throughout the 19th century and is responsible for the founding and operation of several orphanages in England. His autobiography is an absolutely fascinating read. It's full of faithfulness, full of dependence upon God through prayer. By the time he died, he had read his Bible from Genesis to Revelation almost 200 times. Never once in all of his ministry efforts did he ask individuals or organizations or churches for a single dime for the orphanages that he started. But he prayed asking God and he received the equivalent of multi-millions of dollars for the orphanages. He never took a salary in the last 68 years of his ministry, but only asked God in prayer to put it in people's hearts to send him what he needed for his work. He never took out a loan. He never went into debt. And neither he nor the orphans ever went hungry. In fact, there's a story of of Mueller in the first orphanage he founded We had all of the children and all of the staff and they were were hungry. They didn't have any food. And so they all went into the hallway of the orphanage and they knelt down and they prayed asking God to provide for them. And only moments later there was a knock at the door and they opened the door. And a family stood there with enough bread to feed everyone with leftover. Only... Only a few stories of the lives of Christians pan out in these same ways. But it really is fascinating stuff as we read about it in the autobiographies of God's people. It's perhaps not normal. It's not normative that we would see these things in these ways. But it does elevate for us and highlight for us the very importance of prayer in the Christian life. Mueller wrote this, My my dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in Him with all His heart and to cast His burden upon Him. And to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. I read this and I think about it and I just stop and think, wow. What is it like to have a prayer life like George Mueller? Now, we we can't expect that our needs will be met in the same way as his because the Bible calls us to utilize different means as well. But we can't get too far away from this. Do we pray like this? Do we absolutely depend upon God for all of our provision? It may come in different ways, but it all comes from the same hand. Do we pray with absolute dependence upon God? Do we, in his words again, taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you? That's the very place that we ought to be as Christians. Now, no doubt, George Mueller was a remarkable man of Christian faith, but we can't write him off as extraordinary. He was a man like you and I with temptations and sins of the flesh to overcome. And I assure you, from what I know of his life, it didn't come any easier for Mr. Mueller than it does for you or I. Prayer is hard work. Oftentimes, it confuses us. And we see the very same confusion in the lives of Jesus's disciples. Now, at this point in our journey through the gospel of Luke, the disciples have spent a great deal of time with Jesus. He was so frequently doing the very same things. In this case, we see him once again off to the side alone, praying to the father So at this point in Luke's gospel, we see the disciples finally approaching Jesus to ask him how they too can experience the communion with the Father that he enjoys. They want to know how to approach God in the right way. They want to know how God will hear and answer their prayers. Let's begin reading in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... One of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. How are sinful creatures able to go before the most high God and pray acceptably to him and to obtain from him what they need? That's the question. It can only happen if the great hearer of prayer, God himself, reveals his will to us. And he has. So we go into this passage of scripture with a basic assumption that prayer is very important for us to undertake. And God has appointed prayer as the primary means by which we enjoy communion with him. Therefore, we need a perfect pattern by which all of our prayers can be modeled. Our Baptist catechism asks the question, what rule has God given for our direction in prayer? The answer is this. The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that prayer which Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. We, like the disciples, must be taught to pray. We need a special rule of direction that is laid down by Jesus for us to pattern our prayers after. Now, while the disciples saw the prayer life of Jesus, it's safe to assume that they were beginning to make this link between his praying and his power. They obviously noticed that Jesus would retreat to be alone in prayer for lengthy periods of time, sometimes all night long after ministering to large crowds or just prior to some significant turning point in his ministry. And the disciples saw this intimacy between Jesus and and the Father, and they made the connections. So they asked, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Obviously, the disciples of Jesus saw something in the power of John the Baptist and his disciples as well. It was very similar to that of Jesus albeit on a much smaller scale. And, And many of those of John's disciples transferred their devotion to Jesus after John had pointed to him and said, I must decrease that he might increase. So the disciples really wanted to learn. They really wanted to understand how is it that we might have communion with God, intimacy with the Father like Jesus, like John interesting to me that Jesus didn't say, well, turn to the Psalms and read and study those. The Psalms are the inspired prayers. They will assist you in your own prayer life. Is that true? Yes, of course. You hear us pray the Psalms for you on the Lord's Day every week. I want to say as a side note, if you you want to learn how to pray for different circumstances and different people and different uh, stages of your life, and you want to discover what's pleasing to God in those prayers, immerse yourself in the Psalms. How precious and how valuable these wonderful hymns and prayers are to us. Use them, and use them often. But you see, Jesus here is providing a pattern that helps us in formulating all of our prayers. A pattern that helps us along the way in understanding how and with what to address God in prayer. It's important to note that the Lord's Prayer, as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, ends in the words, in this manner, therefore pray. Those were Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 9. In other words, He didn't say, pray this in a repetitive manner, but rather use this as a model, use this as an example to follow so that you might have... A conversation with God. So the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that should be very important to Christians. Every main emphasis of prayer is supplied within the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that begins with adoration. It ends with thanksgiving. It's it's a prayer that implies the necessity of confession because of our weakness and our sinfulness. And as with all prayers, the main substance of it is petitions. And as short as it is, Jesus has condensed a great deal of true prayer into his pattern. Let's read what it is beginning in verse two. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So Jesus begins his instruction. Whenever you pray, pray in this manner. Father, hallowed be your name. Now the best rendering here is really dearest father to the traditional Jew, Jesus' prayer would have been quite shocking. Throughout the Old Testament, God is only referred to as Father 14 times, and then it was only as the corporate Father of Israel, never as an individual, personal Father. But when His disciples asked Jesus for instruction on how to pray, Jesus instructs them to begin by calling on their dearest Father, Jesus is helping the disciples to see that their relationship to God, the Father, is not that of a distant corporate authority, but rather a very intimate, experiential bond with a very personal God that is interested and involved in the lives of his people. This is to be the foundational awareness of all of our prayers. Does this awareness fuel our prayer lives? Is a sense of God's intimate fatherhood profound and growing in your soul as a Christian? Do you really take note of the fact that when you pray, you are praying to the eternal creator of all things who has adopted you into his family and made you his own child? What joy should fill our hearts as we consider that great truth? Jesus goes on, address God as your father and say, Oh, Father, your name is great. Lord, let your name, let your renown, let your glory, let all of who you are be seen and magnified and glorified and exalted and loved and pursued and worshipped in all of creation. Hallowed be your name. It's thoroughly God-centered. And it keeps us rooted in the law of God. It reminds us that there is a way in which God wants us to approach him. Remember, from God's law, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Hallowed be your name. So the first cry of our hearts before God in prayer, whatever we intend to pray about, our first cry is, is that God be magnified. Jesus is reminding us, don't forget who is at the center of all the universe. It's not you. It's not your needs. It's not anyone you might be praying for. It is God the Father in all of his majestic holiness and all of his glory. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is a prayer for the final kingdom. When under Christ's rule, our evil hearts will be made pure, our deceit, our distrust, our shame banished, our fleshly chains are gone, and all conversation and behavior is done to the praise of his glorious grace. It is when God finally and fully consummates the kingdom of Jesus Christ and all of his people are glorified and holy to everlasting. This is our great hope. This is a great promise of God that will be the end. The kingdom's coming is to be the centerpiece in every disciple's prayers today. Jesus brought the kingdom with him. Later in Luke, Jesus says of himself, the kingdom of God is in your midst So it is future, but it is also very present. How did Christ bring the kingdom? Primarily by bringing men and women into obedience to the Father's will. This is the meaning of this prayer, your kingdom come. Because the following words in Matthew 6.10, which is the parallel text to Luke 11, are these, your will be done on earth As it is in heaven. So those who are a part of God's kingdom are striving to do God's will. And so even though you and I want to go our own way and do our own thing. If we are in the kingdom of God we we will have wills that are conformed to the will of God. We will have lives consistent with the commands of God. We will have lives that evidence the fruit of true repentance. And Jesus was continually saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. To pray, your kingdom come, is to repent and to live a life that is characterized by obedience. Let what's done in heaven be done on earth. In other words, let the holiness, the righteousness, and the glory of heaven be. Be shown in your people below. So you see how already Jesus is stripping us of ourselves. He's laying us low in ourselves and helping us to lift our eyes to God in heaven. If you're holding on to something in your life that is your real pursuit, when you pray, you're essentially praying for God to bless your idol. You're saying, I want this, I deserve this, I should get this, I want it to play out my way. Instead of, Father, your will be done, your name be magnified, your name be seen as great, your name be worshipped. And in the end, whose name do you really want to be exalted? That's a question to ask of all of our prayers. Are you simply seeking to use Jesus and prayer as a means to get yourself something or somewhere? Or are you deeply and earnestly seeking to know that God's name is hallowed in all things? And when his will is done, even if it's not what I innately desire, I recognize and I acknowledge that it is best and it is for his glory. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, our prayers are frustrating to us. I think it's primarily because of what James writes in James 4 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We pray and we pray and we pray, and we don't seem to find out that God is ever answering our prayers. Are you seeking God's will? Are you seeking to see God's name exalted? Or are you seeking your own desired ends? Sometimes I hear from people who are not Christians tell me, I'm not a Christian, but I pray and God answers my prayers. Really? Friend, if you're not a Christian, here's what the Bible says to you. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and And God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The Apostle John writes this in John 9 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. No one who is separated from Christ can pray rightly. Think about what is at the heart of prayer. It's because no one apart from Christ desires to see the name of God made great in all of creation and to see his will done on all the earth. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in rebellion against God. You cannot pray so that God will hear and answer your prayer if you are not in Christ because you cannot pray in a way that pleases God. That is, until you pray, Oh God, I am a wicked and vile sinner and have rebelled against you greatly in my life turn me from my sin show me mercy and by your grace save me from the penalty of my sin that's repentance friend if you do not know jesus christ you have no access to god through prayer and you are utterly helpless on your own turn to Jesus and repent of your sins and believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has died to win his people and was raised from the dead to ascend into heaven and to take his rightful seat as king. Won't you see that your only hope is him? The only faithful provider for all of our needs is Jesus Christ. And everything else that you pursue in life will be a dead end. Won't it be in the end that you bow your knee to Jesus as King, not unwillingly, but willingly, to say, Jesus Christ is Lord? And Jesus continues in the Lord's Prayer Give us each day our daily bread. There's a twofold reality what Jesus is presenting for us here. The primary sense we derive from this is material provision of our needs, much like George Mueller, who I spoke of earlier. Obviously, food is a need if we are to survive, and God is the provider of that need. He provided manna from heaven for his children in the wilderness. He provides in abundance for the material needs of his children today. And while that is a good and legitimate prayer, we need to see the bigger element at play here. I think it's best understood through the prayer of Agur. You may not be familiar with the name, but surely if you've spent any time in the Proverbs, you've read his prayer. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Listen to what he says. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What a profound prayer. And that's it. That gets to the heart of what Jesus is teaching us. You see, his concern is the, the hallowing of God's name. Don't make me wealthy lest I say, who is God? I don't need God. But don't make me poor lest I break your law and steal against your command that I might eat. Do you pray like that? Again, this is deeply convicting, isn't it? Do we pray, God, make the circumstances of my life such that I may be most concerned with your glory and be in full pursuit of your glory, not mine? Do we pray like that or do we say, God, here's what I want. Do it for me? I think most of us, if we consider our own lives and our own prayers, might see Agar's prayer to be pretty radical. And it is, it's radically God-centered. His concern, his focus is on the name and the renown of God, not on his circumstances. He says, I know my heart, God. Give me today what I need today. Don't give me more, don't give me less. I have a wicked heart, so protect me that I might glorify your name. Give me us each day our daily bread. Not yesterday's bread, not tomorrow's bread, but today's bread, that I might glorify your name. He goes on in verse 4, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Here's what I love about this verse. Jesus is very clearly acknowledging that as Christians we will sin, and we will have constant need of repentance in our lives. He doesn't give us some false hope that we will be perfect in this life or we will ever come near sinlessness in this life. What's the pattern of prayer? It is going to God in our sin and saying afresh each and every time, Lord, I have sinned. Forgive me of my sin. is it not incredibly beautiful to know that we can go to God in our sin? And he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, I know your heart because it's not unlike mine. When we sin so often, the very last place we want to go is to the Lord. We're ashamed, we're fearful. Ah, But to God is the first place we ought to go. Forgive me my sins, Lord. Forgive me my trespasses. But pay very close attention to how Jesus words it here. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So two things first Jesus is acknowledging the fact that true salvation results in a gracious mercy extending heart toward others. Christians don't hold grudges. When forgiveness is sought, forgiveness is extended. And for those who forgive others, there is a display of absolute trust in God. I forgive because God has forgiven me, and in the end, I know God will do what is best and right, and He will be glorified. So it's not praying, God, handle them, kill them. (laughs) That's not forgiveness. Now, in essence, what Jesus is leading us to pray is the second thing I want us to address here. Forgive us our sins with the measure by which we forgive the sins of others. That's what he's saying. It's for that reason that St. Augustine said that this is the terrible petition of the Lord's Prayer. In other words, if there is unforgiveness in our hearts and yet we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are essentially praying, Lord, do not forgive me. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The scriptures are so conclusive on this matter that the Puritan Thomas Watson said, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. Charles Spurgeon said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. True believers in Christ forgive and are forgiving. Now that's... Not to mean that Christians don't struggle with forgiveness. It does not mean that it comes naturally. It doesn't. For most of us, even when we have truly forgiven those who have sinned against us, we still have this war with bitterness and hatred, this battle that goes on within us. But that very struggle is evidence of God's grace in a believer's heart. But the warning here is for those who claim to be Christians and yet will not forgive others in the way in which God has forgiven us and have no desire to do so. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Has someone confessed sin to you and you have not forgiven them their sin? Have you continued in unforgiveness toward them? Likewise, do they, do, d- does another person even know that you believe they have sinned against you and that there needs to be reconciliation? Do you just continue on in holding against them their sins and they don't even know that they've sinned against you? Have you gone to them to be reconciled? Something I've learned through the years of doing marriage counseling is that men and women, when their spouse comes to them, or when a a friend or an acquaintance senses something's wrong with you, and genuinely don't know why, don't know why they've hurt you or sinned against you, they ask, Is something wrong? What's most often the response? No, nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. Ah, you see, now you've sinned against them. It's a terrible web that we weave, isn't it? We're unwilling to give and receive forgiveness openly and joyfully for the good of the body, for the glory of God. The difference between you being able to forgive and not being able to forgive is the difference between whether or not the Lord's Prayer is a petition of blessing or a petition of curse for you. I'm afraid that for some, our most tightly held possessions are our grudges. Are you secretly proud of yourself? For the fact that when someone sins against you, you stand your ground and are able to be principled and not wavering and not giving in and not being fooled again into having a good relationship with them. We were hurt once, shame on you. Hurt twice, shame on me. Is that your principle? Are people around you scared that they might sin against you? even unintentionally because they know it will result in a lifelong grudge that will never end, probably because they've noticed you do the same thing to others. Then, brother or sister, I need to exhort you to check your heart and consider whether or not you're really even wanting to be praying as Jesus taught us to pray. You may very well, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, be reading your own death warrant but consider the goodness of God to put it this way. All he requires of us is honesty, right? Is God's grace at work in your heart? Then this prayer will be an excellent measure of your spiritual health. Are we healthy, forgiving people? The importance of being forgiving cannot be overemphasized. We do this for the health of our own souls. Bitterness causes innumerable ailments, emotional, physical, spiritual, all within us. Because of bitterness, I have seen relationships completely ruined. I've seen people with physical illness because they're constantly nervous and on edge. And 100% of the time when there's bitterness... People pull away from the church, they isolate themselves from God's people, and they refuse to admit that they have unforgiveness in their hearts. And it is not only crucial that we offer forgiveness ourselves, it's very important that we understand it is important for the health of the church. When there's unforgiveness in our ranks, now listen, if if you don't hear anything else this morning, I hope you hear this. If there is unforgiveness among us, if there's bitterness or anger or unconfessed estrangement from other brothers and sisters in Christ, right here in this place this morning, the church is weakened and maimed and limping. You, unforgiving Christian, are partially responsible for any weakness in our church. And until you make it right you will continue to make the entire body of Christ suffer. Do you need to forgive your spouse for something? Then covenant to do it right now. Have you been unwilling to forgive your parents for some reason? Confess to them your heart and offer forgiveness and repent of your own sin. Have you forgiven your employer who wronged you? Tell them of your bitterness and offer to release them from your scorn. And you can do that with Christ's help. Do you have a grudge against a former church or its pastor or its elders? Do you have a grudge against me? Let's make it right. Let's not let our prayers be hindered that we might walk rightly and joyfully full of hope and full of gladness in Jesus Christ, together, unified as his body, as his bride. I want with you to be able to pray, forgive us our sins, for for we forgive everyone else who's indebted to us. Forgive us by that same measure, Lord. Forgiveness should mean more to you than even your daily bread. Now consider the last part of verse 4, the end of the Lord's Prayer, as it's recorded by Luke. Lead us not into temptation. Now don't misunderstand what Jesus is teaching us here. Do not assume Jesus means by this, the Lord will sometimes lead you to temptation. So ask, ask him that he will keep you from bringing you down that route. We have to remember the words of James. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, where does it come from? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There's often a misunderstanding about temptation. There's a significant and very profound difference between temptation and sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is an opportunity to either obey God or to walk in sin. What Jesus has in mind here is a temptation that entices us to engage in sin. Remember, Jesus himself faced temptation constantly, and yet he did so Without sin. Temptation was an instrumentality by which Jesus was shaped and molded for his life and ministry. And how much more it does it for us. And yet, while I say this, I also do not want us to assume it is a spiritual thing for us to put temptations before ourselves at every opportunity just to see how well we will respond. Brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen and corrupt world. We need not seek out greater temptation. It is always before us. It's in our own hearts. But again, James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or or temptations of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So then what are we asking God in the Lord's Prayer? If there is a helpful element to temptation that makes us stronger and more able to walk faithfully to God. We are asking God to keep us from the temptations that we are most susceptible to fall into that will keep us where we do not want to be. Sinning against God and against others. We pray this prayer knowing that God knows our hearts. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our tendencies. He knows by what we we are most enticed by. Lord, keep me from the things that you know I will fall into. Keep them far away from me. Keep me far away from them. And when I am tempted, keep me from sin and only strengthen my resolve to walk in faithfulness, to walk in holiness according to your will. That is what we are saying. It is a humble awareness of our very own weakness. It is an admission of our absolute need for the never-ending grace of God. Well, we have nine more verses I suppose we'll need to tackle next week as the Lord Jesus continues to teach us how to pray. Brothers and sisters, how are you doing in your life in prayer? What is the ultimate focus of your prayers? For what are you praying? Are your prayers being hindered? Unforgiveness? Are you walking toward and in temptations and succumbing to them in sin? Are you asking things of God in a way that is to suit your own desires instead of hallowing his name in all the earth? Let's covenant together that this week our attention will be particularly focused on prayer that we might be strengthened and lifted up to greater communion with God for the good of his church and for his ultimate and eternal glory. It's fitting that we would pray together the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation,